Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 41. Let us now hear and give our attention to the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And when Jesus was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even in the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knowest not the time of thy visitation. And he went into the temple and began to cast them out that sold therein, and them that bought, saying unto them, It is written, My house is the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And Jesus taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him and could not find what they might do. For all the people were very attentive to hear him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we do come before thee this morning to hear the word that you have ordained for us to hear this morning. We confess there are many distractions this morning and we pray that you would draw our minds away from those things, that you would draw our minds unto the scriptures where we might find hope, where we might find consolation, and where we might find comfort. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength, and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. As we come to our passage of Scripture this morning, I think what often happens as we approach this section of the Gospels, and we find this similar account in all the Gospels, even the Gospel of John, there's a tendency for us to, to think of, of that scene of Jesus coming into the city and the people waving palm branches and the people receiving him as their king. And this is a glorious and festive occasion. And yet even in the midst of this glorious and festive occasion, there is cause for concern. There is cause to be reminded of the encounter that the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples face even in the midst of this glorious day of jubilation. Jesus taught at the close of his public ministry, and we're coming to the end of Luke's gospel. But Jesus teaches us the theme of coming judgment. We see that theme of coming judgment in the parable of the pounds earlier in chapter 19. We see the theme of coming judgment in this section of scripture that we look at this morning. We see the coming judgment 
when the Lord Jesus curses the fig tree. Even in Matthew's gospel, chapter 23, we see the Lord Jesus Christ bringing judgment upon that generation. And even in the Olivet Discourse, all speak of this coming judgment. But as we come to this passage of Scripture, and as I spent more time in it, and as and I know you will find out as you read through it and perhaps on your own go back and look over some of these things, this is a difficult passage for us. And even when you think about the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 23, there's a lot of confusion that comes with this. Because when we think of judgment in the New Testament, we automatically think of something way off in the future. But Jesus is speaking here of a future judgment, but not something way off in the future. It's something that is coming in just a few years. But here Jesus speaks of that coming judgment, and Jesus speaks of that controversy that he will encounter even in the end of his earthly ministry. And yet it's all in the context of this king riding into Jerusalem, the people receiving him as their king. And the question this morning, even as we begin looking at our passage, is how willing were the people to receive that king? Oh, there's a lot of voices giving praise unto God. There's a lot of people proclaiming the mighty works of the Lord Jesus Christ, the works that they had seen. Blessed be the king. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Yet there were some who did not receive him as king. And the question this morning is to those of us sitting here, to those at the sound of my voice, have you received this king? Are you willing to follow this king and make him your king? But as we come to our passage of scripture, we find here in the midst of this festive occasion, which is the Passover feast, Jews coming from all over to Jerusalem for the Passover. In the midst of that occasion, we find the Lord Jesus Christ weeping with lamentations over the city of Jerusalem. This is a powerful passage, one that we often overlook. And even in the other gospel accounts, there's some a little different detail. There's a little different ordering of the events. And contrary to what uh, critical scholars and, and uh, enemies of the church today may say, there's no contradiction in God's word. All the gospels bear witness and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in Luke's account, we find that after... Jesus comes toward the city. He begins to cry out in anguish over the city. It's interesting when you go back to the parable of the pounds in chapter 19, verse 27. 
as Jesus tells the story of the king coming and having given talents to all of his servants, the king will come and will ask for reckoning. And in verse 27, it says, but those enemies which would not that I should what? Reign over them. Bring them here and slay them before me. Now that is a sobering verse. That the Lord Jesus Christ would say, if they do not want me reigning over them, then bring them and I will slay them. For they are my enemies. But notice the contrast between verse 27 and what we find in verse 40 and 41. Now as Luke tells the story, Jesus is approaching the city. Jesus sees Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. He's standing there in that valley that overlooks Jerusalem, overlooks that city. And he sees a people who would not have him reign over them as their king. And it is in that context that Jesus says unto these Pharisees in verse 40, when they rebuke him, for the disciples crying out, Hosanna, blessed is the king. He says, I tell you that if they hold their peace, these stones will cry out. And immediately it's verse 41 says that when he came near to Jerusalem, he's not yet within the city, but as he's drawing near, he beholds, beholds them. And what does he do? He weeps over them. Children know this. What is the shortest verse in all of Scripture? Jesus wept. We know that. But do we know and understand why Jesus comes, beholds the city, and weeps over it? It's a very intriguing verse. But if you're following the outline, there's two reasons why Jesus comes and weeps over the city. He weeps over the city in verses 41 and 42 because they're blind. The people in the city are blind. We've seen Jesus heal blind people. We see Jesus healing a number of blind people from one city in one day. Gives them sight. And in that miracle, Jesus shows that we are blind to the things of his kingdom. That we cannot see. And so as he comes here, he weeps over the blindness of the city. And in verse 42, he says, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this day, the things that belong unto thy peace. But now they're hidden from thine eyes. There in verse 41, as we really begin to read this and really think upon it, Jesus is weeping over their blindness. He says, the day has come. 
And this is a day when peace belongs to thee. In other words, this is a day of you reconciling with God. This is a day for the city of Jerusalem to make their peace with God. And yet, he says, your eyes are hidden. Your eyes are veiled. Your eyes are blinded, these things. Yet how often are we blind to the things of God's kingdom? How often are the cities of our nation blind? Children killing, murdering children in the streets. Murderers murdering law enforcement and police officers. And this is not just one or two isolated incidences. This happens almost daily throughout our nation. And we see perhaps what Jesus saw. Now remember, we, we kind of overlook this as we go through the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus, through the eyes of Luke, is seen as God and man. That it is God who has taken on human flesh that has come. And it is so that it is this God-man who is weeping over Jerusalem. But he's not weeping over it as you often see in the media when a, a mother is standing there before the camera, the cameras are rolling, and she's weeping because her child has been murdered because of some drive-by shooting and these things that we often see. No, Jesus isn't weeping in that sense. He is weeping over the blindness of the people within that city. I think it's striking as we come to this passage that we, we often overlook it. He's not just simply weeping. There's two other occasions in the life and the ministry of Jesus when he weeps. You remember what those are? The one occasion is when his friend Lazarus had died. Mary and Martha, Lazarus was very close to the Lord Jesus. And she says, come quickly. Lazarus is near death. And Jesus says, I'll be there. And they're frantic. Like we get sometimes when things in life happen. We, we, we get frantic. Jesus says, it'll be okay. So when does Jesus come? After he's dead. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't just walk in the room and he says, it'll be okay. No, he walks in and he weeps. He weeps over the death of Lazarus. Showing that as the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who is fully human, that he weeps and grieves over death. That he weeps over his friend who has died. And so we learn the compassion of Christ in his weeping over Lazarus' death. Because death is an enemy. And so Jesus weeps. The other occasion is when he is coming to the Garden of Gethsemane. There before he is to be tried and arraigned and put to death. He goes and prays alone to the Father. What a wonderful consolation to us that the Lord Jesus Christ prays for us. 
And as he's there in the garden, it says drops of sweat were dripping. He is weeping there in the garden. Perhaps weeping over the the sins of all of his elect whom he will atone for on the cross. And here Jesus weeps over the blindness of the city. But not only does he weep over their blindness, he weeps over their impending judgment. Here is where the difficulty comes, and even with the parallel accounts. For here Jesus weeps over her because of her judgment. For lo, the days shall come upon thee, Jerusalem, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee around, and keep thee on every side. Jesus weeps for their unbelief, for their blindness. He weeps for the national consequences for their blindness. And we see the consequences of their blindness in his judgment that he speaks here. I've entitled this The Lamentations of Our Savior because it, it parallels with that book of Lamentations in the Old Testament where the prophet is weeping over the cities. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is our king. And as our prophet, he weeps over the cities. Do we weep over the cities? Oh, here's another city gone to hell in a handbasket. <coughs> oh, look at that city. We tend to regard the cities of our nation as just an absolute waste. That's the mentality even of the church sometimes. And yet Jesus in weeping is concerned for the city because of the judgment that is to come. Because there's a national consequence for sin and unbelief. Not just for Old Testament Israel. But for the church in our day. For the nation in our day. But verses 43 through 44 is an oracle of doom. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of celebration of a king coming to a city... Jesus, that very king who is worshipped, speaks of the days that shall come when that city shall be surrounded by her enemies. That city that will be compassed on every side. And even the ground and even the children within that city shall be judged. Jesus says there will not be one stone left upon another because thou dost not know the time of thy visitation. Jesus is saying that not only for the benefit of the disciples but for the benefit of these Pharisees who were still there observing all of this Because as we come to the end of this section, the Pharisees are still there, causing great trouble. 
The great troubler in Israel has come. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it says that the days shall come upon thee, verse 43. This is an important thing to remember in Luke's gospel. The days shall come, speak of days of judgment. I draw your attention, there's a number of passages, and so if you want to jot these down, we won't spend a whole lot of time, but I think it's important to note, particularly 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 31. You know the scene there in 1 Samuel chapter 2? Eli's house. Eli is a judge over Israel. And what happens there in 1 Samuel chapter 2? The entire household of Eli is judged. The Lord Jesus says to Zacchaeus, salvation has come to your house today. But salvation didn't come to Eli's house that day. Judgment came to Eli's house. And so there in chapter 2 in verse 31... Behold, the day shall come. The same expression. It's a Hebrew expression, but it's used there in Luke. When I will cut off thine arm. What a, what a horrible scene. And this is, this is where skeptics love to attack the Christian faith. Well, look at all the violence in the scripture. Look at this, this God who, who, who is a violent God. Cutting off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house that there shall not be an old man in thy house. In other words, the Lord God will come in judgment and he will take away not only the strength of that household, but he will take away the rule of that household from Eli. And there's words of instruction here. We don't think of it. But I hope that there's not anyone sitting here today whose house will become a place of judgment where the Lord will take away the strength and the influence of the Father and the one who is the ruler of that household. We live in a day when we have turned away from the strength and the influence of godly families. We've turned to to so-called gay pride. We've turned to transgenderism and all of these things because we don't want any thought of God in our minds. Oh, he hasn't created man and woman. He's created man, woman, this, that, whatever, whatever construct you want to come up with. And yet here we see that in Eli's house, God took away the strength. He took away the influence of the Father when he brought judgment but as we continue on, it gets better. Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20, verse 17. Again, the expression, behold, the days come. That all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall what? Be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. This prophecy of, being, of them being carried into Babylon comes about a hundred years later. And so 
that's when the judgment will come, when God will carry them off into Babylon. And what will happen there? They will be surrounded by their enemies, just like what Jesus says here. Your enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee around and keep thee in on every side. But we see also in Isaiah chapter 39, in verse 6, another reference to this expression, the day shall come. 39.6 Behold, the day shall come that all that is in thine house, and that which the fathers have laid up in store unto this day. I just read that. I'm sorry. Just read that reference. 2 Kings chapter 20. Amos chapter 4 and verse 2. This reference to encamping on every side is a reference found in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 3. And so here is a number of references to the days coming in which God will bring judgment. Now in those passages, God will bring judgment when he leads the people into the city of Babylon. But here in our passage before us in Luke, what is being described here is a day of visitation under Emperor Vespasian in about 69 and 70 AD. One of the early emperors, this is a fulfillment of that prophecy. They shall come, verse 44, and lay thee even with the ground, and thy children shall be left within the city. The early church historian Eusebius describes verses 42 through 44 as that time when this emperor Vespasian would rule. And so the prophecy that Jesus refers to is fulfilled in 70 A.D. Now this is a difficult teaching in our day. Because there are some who believe that the fulfillment of that prophecy in 70 A.D. was the end of time. And that there's no other prophecies, there's no other future. But I want you to see, and there are a number of of solid commentators and, and men who, who see the prophecy being fulfilled in 70 AD when God brought the Roman armies to the city of Jerusalem and the city was laid in waste. The temple was destroyed. And what happened there signals several things. It signaled the Destruction of Jerusalem with the ending of the Jewish age. The Jewish age ended in 70 AD. That's not popular teaching today, but that is what the scriptures teach. But not only is it the end of the Jewish age, but it's the beginning of the gospel age. And this is what many like 
Gary DeMar and others who, who take a very extreme uh, preterist view of the scriptures as all being fulfilled in 70 AD. The problem is that not only does judgment bring an end of the Jewish age, it brings the beginning of the gospel age that we live in now. We are in the gospel age and there's only one other age to come. And that is the second advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, saw the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD as a fulfillment of this prophecy. But he also saw the coming of the gospel age. And there in his sermon, The Lamentations of Jesus, he lays out for his hearers that the Lord Jesus Christ weeps over Jerusalem because her day of destruction is coming. If thou wouldst know these things, you would be prepared to avoid the judgment. But Jesus says, because these things will happen, you will not know the time of thy visitation. Jesus did reveal it to him. We know that because history has recorded that. We know it after the fact. But Jesus tells this before it happens. As a true prophet of God, he speaks of things before they happen. So the people are probably thinking, when will this destruction come? The Jews are thinking, no way. We, we, we've got to put this man away. He's, he's destroying our, he's upsetting our whole system. And yet the days are coming. When judgment will come. And so, as the Lord Jesus speaks of the fulfillment of those days, he weeps over the blindness. He weeps over the destruction that is to come. But the destruction is not final. Because there is a day coming. And perhaps we don't even know the time of that visitation. When the Lord Jesus Christ will return. And so as Jesus speaks judgment upon that city. We find not only the anguish of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we. We see the authority of Jesus in verses 45 through 48. There in verse 45, it says, He went into the temple, and he immediately began to cast out them that sold, and them that bought. And he quotes there in verse 46, from Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And so there's three things that Jesus does by his divine authority. He rebukes the people within the temple. He restores the temple. And he brings condemnation to worshipers within that temple. Can you imagine that? 
Lord Jesus Christ coming to the city. He comes in the temple. And he speaks judgment to the worshipers. He speaks condemnation. But he also speaks restoration. Matthew Henry is very helpful on this section of Scripture on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that Christ cleansed the temple of those who defiled it and profaned it. He taught daily in the temple, as the text tells us. And he purged the temple of her corruptions. And how did he do that? Verse 47, he taught daily in the temple. So verse 46, he rebukes the the worshipers. He restores the temple, brings condemnation. And then he makes the temple a place of worship and a place for preaching the word of God. Matthew Henry bears this out very well. Now, when the church is purged of her corruptions, then the gospel can be rightly preached. We see this in the time of the Reformation, when the reformers who were kicked out of the the church of Rome, that, that great harlot, when they were cast out, they purged the church of Romanism and all of the superstition. But it came through the preaching of the gospel. This is why the preaching of the gospel is so important in the life of the church. Because we can come up with all kinds of other things. But without the preaching of the gospel, there, there's, there's no call to repentance. There's no rebuke. There's, there's no condemnation of those things that are displeasing to God. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ there in John chapter 7 verse 46? Never a man spake like this man. Jesus spoke with power. He spoke with authority. And he called the people to repentance. Jesus in his kingly character shows by his tears, shows by his words that he preaches that he brings both salvation and and judgment. Now sadly, among some reformed people, there's been this view of the gospel that just sees the gospel as bringing salvation. Gospel brings judgment as well. And so when the word of God is preached, it brings salvation to those who will hear it, to those who will receive the king. But it brings judgment to those who close their ears who don't want to hear it. And that's really the thought here in this passage. That as Jesus comes to to preach that word to the people, there's there's a call to obedience. Jesus rebukes them so that he might fulfill Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7. that says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. But also in Jeremiah 7.11, we see the judgment, the condemnation. That Jesus will condemn the hypocrisy. 
Jesus will condemn the false religion and then he will make the temple of God a house for all nations, not just for Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. But as Jesus is daily teaching there in the temple, now he's in the final week of his earthly ministry. He's about to be arraigned and charged. And he's daily teaching. He's using every opportunity as he's there in Jerusalem as the king, as the one who has authority to preach the word of God. But notice verse 47, and this is so ironic. You see the conflict and the turmoil there in verse 39, and now you see it again. The chief priests and scribes and the, the chief of the people sought to destroy him. Here's a man that fed the crowds with a few loaves and fishes. Here is a man who restored sight to the blind. Here is a man who did all those mighty works that Luke records so eloquently in his gospel. And yet they sought to destroy him. We live in a day when people seek to destroy the Christ of the scriptures by saying, well, no, he's a Christ who wants social justice. He's a Christ who wants to say, I get it. He is a Christ of their own making. But this Christ that Luke records is one whom they sought to destroy because he wants to upset their system. And verse 48 concludes, And could not find what they might do. They couldn't destroy him at this point. For Luke records, all the people were very attentive to hear him. And here in the end of this account, as Jesus cleanses the temple, as he weeps over the city, as he calls the people to repentance, as he calls the people to salvation, that the true heavenly temple might be filled with worshipers. There were the religious leaders that sought to destroy him. Oh, beware of religious leaders in our day who destroy the kingdom of Christ because of their false teaching, just like these scribes and Pharisees. But the people were attentive to hear him. They couldn't find reason at this point to destroy Jesus because the people, the people received him. The people were attentive. But I think Luke is, is accurate in his recording here in verse 48. The people were very attentive. It's not just, oh wow, this, this guy's coming on a, on a colt. He's riding into the city in royal splendor. Oh, this is really amazing. That's not the thought that Luke concludes with. He says, all the people were attentive. The common people, the disciples who followed him, they were attentive to hear him. They were attentive to hear what Jesus was saying in the temple daily. But by way of application, there are a number of things we 
we can come away with from this passage. And, and I trust it will motivate us to, to think more clearly about these things. But here we see, and I've already stated this previously, we see the compassion of Jesus for sinners. We've seen the compassion of Jesus earlier in his ministry. And now at the very end of his ministry, the Lord Jesus Christ is still showing compassion for sinners. Now Jesus weeps over the city. And I think J.C. Ryle is absolutely right on on this point. That we should not see that it is the job of Christians... Only to weep for the elect. But there should be a weeping for the non-elect. Because as Paul so clearly teaches there in Romans chapter 9, there is the doctrine of election that saves a people whom God has chosen. And there is the doctrine of reprobation which judges and condemns those that are in the city. And so there's two types of people. But yes, we should weep over sin. We should weep over those who are in a lost estate. Some of us have family members that are blind and under the judgment of God. And so we need to show compassion and mercy. How could Jesus show compassion and mercy? to the worst of sinners. He showed compassion for the lowest, lowliest sinner, yet he brought judgment to bear upon the religious hypocrites who had no compassion for anyone but themselves. Well, friends, we need a, a fresh understanding of compassion for sinners. And I must confess that oftentimes it's easy to just read through the news, watch the news, and see the same old event, and we just become numb to it. But we've seen sinners come through our doors that we've had opportunity to minister to. And there's been a wonderful outreach of compassion. And Jesus shows this. That he weeps over sin, over blindness. That he weeps particularly over the judgment that's come. And we must see that God's judgment has come to our nation. It's not something that is yet to come. It's already happening. God is judging the cities of our nation. But as he brings judgment, we must see these cities as sinners whom we must have compassion for. The prophet in the Old Testament says, seek the welfare of the city. Pray for the cities. Oh, we need to pray for our cities. We need to pray for our leaders. There should be no reason or excuse why Christians do not pray for those in civil or civil magistrates. There's no reason why we should not pray for our cities. They're under God's judgment. But there's a second application I want to draw from here, and I think this is one that is particularly important to us. And that is the ignorance and blindness of our own day. We are a nation 
in the United States that has received the light of the gospel. And we've rejected it. Just like Israel received the light of the gospel, even under the Old Testament, the prophets came and spoke the word of God. And what did they do? They wanted to kill the prophets. And so we are a nation that has received the light of the gospel and we've rejected it. We live in a generation of those who despise and hate the gospel. Oh yes, even those who are sitting in so-called churches today, they despise and hate the gospel. They redefine religion to tolerate all forms of indecency. They redefine religion to tolerate all forms of false religion, whether it be Judaism, whether it be Romanism or Mormonism, or even those cults that come knocking at your door. We live in an ecumenical age. Oh, we want our pastor to join with our ecumenical movement so that we can feed the hungry, so that we can bring social justice. And yet there are many groups and buildings identifying as churches. And even reformed churches are full that have little zeal, and little love for the truth. And the question is this morning, are we blind to our own sin? Are we blind to what we see before us? Do we come on the Lord's day and we sing with hearty zest? Do we go home, there's little zeal. There's little love for the truth. There's little love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But thirdly and finally, by way of application, Jesus bears this out. This is why the Jews wanted to get rid of him, or at least the religious leaders, I should say. Because there's a profaning of holy and sacred things. Jesus states it well here. You've made my house a den of thieves. You've made my house a vile place, you've profaned it. You've profaned and desecrated holy and sacred things. By way of segue into the Lord's Supper, these elements of bread and wine are not common things. They are holy things. They are sacred things. The waters of baptism are holy and sacred The pulpits of our churches are holy and sacred things. What we do within the confines of this building is holy and sacred. And how it is so easy for us in our day to disregard the public means of prayer and worship. How easy it is for us to disregard the holy elements in the sacraments. And that is not to get into the issue of, of mode of baptism or purpose of baptism in the Lord's Supper. That is a general call to regard the things that the Lord has placed within the church as holy and sacred things. I grew up Roman Catholic, had applied to go into the seminary to become a priest until God in His amazing grace turned my whole life upside down. But I remember as a child, we always sat in the cry room. 
Oh, we love the cry room because that was the playroom. Uh-uh. Not growing up, it wasn't. You sat in that cry room. My dad looked at me. And he just pointed his finger. And there was a hush that came over us. But it wasn't a hush because holy and sacred things were being observed. Because we, we just went through the form and the ritual just like the Jews did. But there was a sense in which this is, this is a, a time when there should be a hush and a regard for what is taking place. And let me say this as, as gracious as I can. This facility that we meet in for worship, there should be a holy hush, even among our children when we enter into worship. This is not a time for playing. This is not a time for conversation. This is not a time for for mulling about. This is a time to receive the sacred things, the holy things that God has given to us. And so let us come with that holy hush, that desire for the profane, or for the sacred things and not for the profane. Desire to hear the word of the Lord. You know, these Pharisees and scribes were very observant when it came to the Sabbath. They regarded the Sabbath, and yet they were hypocrites because they only regarded the form. And at times we can regard the form and yet inwardly reject it. Our children might know, okay, we can't do that on this day. Okay. But their hearts aren't attentive to it. As with every command of God, there's both outward obedience, but there's the affection of the heart. And as we close out our passage this morning, I want us to see from this passage that there should not just be attentiveness to outward things. But there should be attentiveness to, to the attitude of our affection, our hearts. As the psalmist says, oh, how I love thy law. And may it be said of us this morning that our desire for holy and sacred things, our desire for the welfare of our cities, the weeping over our cities, the call to repentance... The call to repentance comes not just for the cities, but the call to repentance comes to us this morning. And the Lord's table is a time for us to renew our covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are good Presbyterians. We believe in confirmation every time we come to the Lord's table. Because that is where we are nourished, we're fed, we're drawn away to this Christ who feeds us, who nourishes our souls. Have you understood who this Christ is? Are you attentive to hear him? Do you desire to have this Christ reign over you? Oh, I would plead with you this morning that you would give attention to Christ in the preaching of the word, in the sacraments, that you would give attention to his word 
that you would say, Lord Jesus Christ, I desire to have you reign over me as king. Lord Jesus Christ reigns as king over the church. Will we recognize his rule and his authority? Let us come away from this passage with a resolve to see afresh the compassion, the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and our call to compassion for sinners even when they have things in their nose, even when they might look a little strange. We need to show compassion. We need to give the hope of the gospel even to those who are in despair. And even this morning, perhaps hearing this message sounds like, oh, there's not much hope here. But apart from Christ, there is no hope. Apart from the mercy of Christ, there is no hope. But through repentance and faith, we find hope in this risen and exalted Christ who prepares bread and wine that our souls might be nourished. And so let us come and ask for this king this morning to reign over us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we do give thee thanks that you are Zion's king. That there is no other king. That there is no other one who has full command and sway over his people. Lord Jesus Christ, teach us to show mercy and compassion to sinners. Teach us to give regard to holy and sacred things. Teach us to give regard to the blindness of our own hearts. Oh Lord, we confess our blindness this morning and we ask that you would give us fresh eyes that we might see. That even in these elements of bread and wine, we might see Christ afresh as the one who is the Lamb of God that has taken away our sins. Receive our worship. Receive the meditation of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.